Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for another action-packed Monday. And just ahead this hour, Sochi summit, Russian President Putin and Turkish leader Erdogan holding talks in the Russian port city. Vladimir Putin saying he is open to renegotiating the Black Sea grain export deal despite continued attacks on Ukraine's grain infrastructure. Plus, defense deliberations. Ukrainian President Zelensky nominates a new defense minister at a critical juncture in the country's war effort. He cited the need for, quote, new approaches in the conflict. And climate crunch, African leaders and more gathering in Nairobi, Kenya today for the first ever Africa summit to address the climate crisis and find financial solutions to help mitigate the impact. We'll discuss Africa's energy challenge and its renewable potential with Fatih Birol, the head of the International Energy Agency. That's coming up on the show. Also, Garden Grows, shares of Chinese property developer Country Garden, rising 20% on Monday after the firm's biggest creditor allowed a delay in bond repayments. The news also helping, as you can well imagine, a relief rally in Asia stocks with the Hang Seng up 2.5% in Monday's trade. All this after Beijing announced a wide array of economic support measures last week that continue to provide a lift. Europe also in the green, though, with lighter trade due to the U.S. Labor Day holiday. Markets are shut. The Wall Street bulls chalking up solid gains, though, last week, helped along by market-friendly jobs numbers and in-line inflation data. So it's a day of rest on Wall Street, but no rest here for the team on First Move. And we do begin today's show in Ukraine. Overnight, Russia launched a sizable attack on civilian infrastructure in Ukraine's Odessa region and a drone attack in the east. Officials reporting destruction to warehouses, industrial buildings and agricultural equipment. Meanwhile, President Zelensky announcing a major military shakeup, as I mentioned, replacing his defense minister as his country enters the 19th month of war. Alexei Reznikov has been through more than 550 days of full-scale war. I believe that the ministry needs new approaches and other formats of interaction with both the military and society as a whole. And Melissa Bauer joins us now. I think one can only imagine the uh, demands that being a defence minister in this kind of environment, a toll it takes on you. And we should point out that the defence minister had already said he planned to resign. What can we say about his replacement, Melissa? He's got an interesting CV and obviously grew up uh, in Crimea. Umarov, that's right, uh, Julia. He's a Crimean Tatar and uh, he's uh, widely seen as a fairly safe pair of hands. He's got a business background, but he has been involved in political and administrative roles before and specifically involved in this war, being involved in some of the prisoner of war exchanges that have taken place since the Russian invasion uh, began. Uh, he was also, by the way, a part of the negotiation of the Black uh, sea grain initiative that is once again being discussed again in Sochi, killed as it was uh, by Vladimir Putin a while back. And it was uh, Mr. Umarov himself who at the time that the first grain deal had been struck had warned that Russia may not uh, stick the landing and stay uh, with it. So he's seen as a widely uh, competent man who can take over at a very critical time. What you're talking about is taking over 
a defence ministry that has been plagued by uh, corruption allegations. There have been uh, allegations concerning procurement contracts, Julia, that had to do largely uh, with uh, Ukrainian weapon contracts and Ukrainian taxpayer money. But nonetheless, uh, these kinds of uh, uh, incidents and, and corruption allegations have overshadowed uh, so much of the last 18 months. And of course, although Alexei Reznikov also widely credited with having done an extremely good job at an extremely difficult post, uh, leaves at his own request and amid a great deal of praise. It is also a way for Kyiv to put behind them these 18 months where that ministry was dogged by those allegations. We've seen a number of resignations, a number of sackings, a number of arrests as a result. And there is a clear determination on the part of Kyiv to say, look, that is behind us. We are now sorting things out. And this is, of course, not just about uh, pursuing the war effort, as difficult as that is, Julia, but it is also about reassuring NATO allies that they can continue to give their weapons to Kyiv, but also looking ahead to Kyiv's uh, hoped-for membership of NATO at some point and the European Union. Beyond that, of course, Mr. Umarov takes over at an extremely critical juncture uh, in that this is the point, uh, Julia, 19 months into the war, when Kyiv is not only trying to extend its own weaponry ability, its ability of its weapons to reach Russia and to take this war to Russian soil as it's been doing in a more and more determined and clear manner, uh, but also to convince NATO members of the need to keep supplying some of the weaponry uh, that is now needed on the front lines where Ukraine believes they're making a difference. They're looking, of course, at increasing, ramping up not just the training, but the procurement of F-16s. But there are other pieces of equipment that uh, Kyiv is going to be looking to its partners to supply as it feels now that it finally has some momentum behind it as it seeks to push through the, uh, the Zaporizhia front lines and make, consolidate rather, the very limited yet significant gains that it's been making these last few days, Julia. Yeah, Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that. And Vladimir Putin says he's open to negotiations on the Black Sea Grain deal after withdrawing from the UN-brokered initiative in July. The Russian president is hosting his Turkish counterpart in talks in Sochi. President Erdogan looking to convince the Russian leader to re-enter the deal, restart global grain exports and help contain food price inflation. Nick Robertson joins us now on this. Nick, uh, the Kremlin have indicated all the way along that they were willing to renegotiate this. The problem is what they want in return. What does that look like? Um, we don't know precisely, and I suspect President Erdogan is finding out something about that right now. What we know is that Russia is frustrated that it's not getting enough of its agricultural products and fertilizer uh, to the international market. So it's also frustrated that uh, it's sort of cut off from some ins international institutions international financial institutions. Um, and this does appear to be at the root of why Russia pulled out of that deal, remembering that this was a deal, of course, that was in two parts, the Black Sea grain deal. There was the UN-Turkey-Ukraine part and the parallel UN-Turkey-Russia part. They weren't one in the same deal, but they had to go together. And when Russia pulled out, it sank the whole deal in its totality. Now, Ukraine has been trying to get the Black Sea grain corridor uh, up and running. It's moved five ships successfully over the past month, um, but not this is not by any means the grain deal in itself. So how does Putin intend to get to the point where he gets what he wants? Um, and as I say, we don't know what he wants behind the scenes. We do know from the foreign minister that they're blaming the situation on the West, that they're saying, look, promises have been made, that things will go faster, we'll get what we want. He said they're promises, we need guarantees. And what Putin has been talking about lately is 
an alternate grain corridor or an alternate grain deal just for Russia, where Russia would ship its grain to Turkey and Turkey would ship it onwards to the world, to Africa in principle. So um, that's perhaps the leverage that Putin thinks he goes into this meeting with. But the UN has said specifically there are concrete offers uh, and this does seem to be what President Erdogan will be trying to push forward here, this going back to the original grain deal. Of course, Ukrainians have been very clear to the international community and particularly to Turkey that there's no way that Erdogan, that, that Putin should be allowed to sort of do an end run around that original grain deal. Uh, and of course, Ukraine points out that since Russia pulled out of that grain deal, it has targeted multiple times grain storage and port facilities, um, which they would say gives light to the fact that Russia wants to maintain food supplies to the world. Yeah, including overnight and in the hours before this meeting too. We'll see what comes of it. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that there. Now, when the world's top 20 economies meet later this week in New Delhi, they will likely be doing so without Chinese President Xi Jinping. It will be the first time President Xi has skipped the gathering with Chinese Premier Li Chang taking his place. U.S. President Joe Biden says he's, quote, disappointed and expects to see President Xi in the future. As Christy Lu Stout reports. Will Chinese leader Xi Jinping attend the G20 summit in India later this week? Well, according to China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Premier Li Qiang will be at the gathering in New Delhi. And this is the clearest sign yet that she is not attending the summit amid speculation that he would be a no-show. Today, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning said this, quote, at the invitation of the government of the Republic of India, Premier of the State Council Li Qiang will attend the 18th G20 summit to be held in New Delhi, India on September 9th and 10th. There is no mention of Xi in this statement. Now, Xi has attended all other in-person G20 meetings since becoming president in 2013. In 2021, during the COVID-19 pandemic, he joined via video link. Now, at this year's G20, she would be missing out on key conversations on climate in Ukraine. And his expected no-show New Delhi comes as China and India clash over a border dispute. It also comes as China battles a number of economic challenges, with one of the country's largest home builders warning of default. On Sunday, the U.S. President Joe Biden told reporters that he was disappointed that she was not attending the summit, but suggested that he will be meeting with him in the future. Biden did not elaborate. U.S. tensions and tensions with China have flared over Taiwan, trade and territorial disputes in the South China Sea. And in a bid to stabilize the relationship, a number of senior Biden officials have visited China in recent months, including the U.S. Commerce Secretary. President Biden previously told CNN that he would be meeting with Xi Jinping in the fall, and they may still have an opportunity to speak on the sidelines of the APEC summit in San Francisco in November. Biden and Xi last spoke on the sidelines of the G20 in Bali last November, and that has been the only in-person encounter between the two leaders since Biden took office in 2021. Christy Liu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Now, the general who staged a coup in Gabon last week has formally taken the title of interim president of the nation. General Nugemo was sworn in by Gabon's constitutional court judges just a short time ago. According to AFP, Nugema pledged to stage free and transparent elections, but did not specify when. 
And also on the continent, heads of more than a dozen African nations, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry and the U.N. Secretary General are among those convening in Nairobi, Kenya, for a three-day summit to discuss the region's worsening climate change emergency. The continent is home to some of the most climate-vulnerable nations in the world and is among the least responsible, too, for the emissions leading to man-made climate change. Opening the event, Kenya's president, William Ruto, emphasized that Africa can adapt and also thrive in the still nascent alternative energy marketplace. For a very long time, we have looked at this as a problem. It is time we flipped and looked at it from the other side. There are opportunities, immense opportunities as well. Leaders at the summit hope to agree on a common environmental platform ahead of the COP28 climate summit in Dubai later this year. And Larry Mamadou joins us now from Nairobi. Larry, clearly the first of its kind looking to galvanize greater investment interest, I think, and help aid the transition to more renewable energies. What concrete is expected to come from this summit? What President Ruto talks about there is that there needs to be this a stop to this division between the global north and global south about how to best respond to the climate crisis. And he pointed out that Africa's carbon footprint is limited, but the human toll of, the, of climate change is felt most greatly here. I want to talk to Dr. Dahiru Mohammed, who's from Nigeria, from Kano State. You're here at the Africa Climate Summit. What do you think is the most important outcome you, that this, this conference should achieve? Well, uh, I think this should be a wake-up call to the global uh, north uh, so that they can uh, fulfill the pledge of 100 billion uh, climate funds in order to support African countries and other uh, developing countries in addressing these climate issues because we have been at the receiving end. And uh, coming from a continent that contributes less than 4% of the emission level, right. I think this is an excellent start for us because that shows our seriousness and how Africa is willing to address the issues of climate crisis globally. You come from northern Nigeria, you're very close to the Sahel, where some of the most dire impacts of the climate crisis can be seen. What do you hope for going into COP28? Well, I, I hope that uh, issues, uh, particularly surrounding these climate finances, will be a long, uh, a long gone history, so that we don't have to be debating on them. Last year in Sharm El Sheikh, we had the same discussion on on climate finance. In Glasgow, we had the same discussion on climate finance. It should be a high time that we address all these issues, and uh, uh, countries uh, will will are supposed to keep on to their place the nationally determined contributions from both the, the developed countries and the developing ones. Do you feel that in Africa there's a lot of promises from the global north but no commitments to them? Absolutely there is. The climate finance is, the, is, a, is a pointer to that. Okay, very succinct. Dr. Mohammed, thank you so much. And I think you hear that, that at every meeting at, in Glasgow, in Sharm El Sheikh, Julia, these issues have come up again and again and again. And everybody agrees there should be some discussion on loss and damage, but the actual contribution is just not coming. Yeah, the follow-through on that's required. Larry Madero, thank you so much for that. Straight ahead, we'll be continuing the conversation, speaking to the head of the International Energy Agency, who says there are immense opportunities that await the continent if it can harness its renewable energy potential. Perhaps it could use some of that money too. We're now, we're back after this. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. China is considering placing limits on screen time for children and teenagers in a bid to curb Internet addiction and cultivate, quote, good morality. All devices would be required to have a built-in minor mode, which would restrict screen time based on age. We've got to, Ivan Watson has more on the proposed rules and the reaction to them. It's an all too familiar scene. A child begs his mom for one more minute on her phone. A daily battle over devices. China's answer, minor mode a proposed law to order tech giants to limit children's screen time and shut off apps. For one tired parent, the proposed rules would be a relief. This would be wonderful if it were true. There would be less anger between us, mother and son. He just can't keep his phone out of his hands. Under the new mode, children under 18 will get a maximum of two hours on smartphones per day and will be locked out overnight. But Beijing's top-down approach has its critics. The broader worry I have is that China, under the current leadership, is imposing a very strict cultural moralism on their citizens, which uh, is uh, not going to be necessarily helpful for their personal growth or for the future of the Chinese economy. As part of China's broader digital crackdown, minors are already banned from gaming on weekdays. Social media apps have time limits, and some parents ship their children off to boot camps to kick internet addiction. Meng Tai Zhang, who was sent to one of these camps at 16, says Beijing's latest rules won't work. With all those structural changes, um, limiting children's um, time on video game won't, won't change anything for the addiction. If they find a way to create a more meaningful space for children to spend their time together and uh, have their parents relax from the work, the situation would be much better. Children are also finding ways around Beijing's rules. This 10-year-old explains. Some kids use their parents' ID to log in. 
They never put their phones down. They'll look at it until the battery runs out. The new guidelines order internet providers to highlight socialist and patriotic content and promote family values. This mom hopes the rules will also mean more outdoor play. It takes away from your time to play, exercise, and read. It takes away from your time to do more interesting things. But her son says parents need to lead by example. It's not easy to control myself, but adults can't either. Don't speak about us adults. Speak about yourself. A battle over screen time that's far from over. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. A couple of ten-year-olds there telling their parents what they think. Certainly, it's quite fun. All right, investors in the embattled Chinese property giant Country Garden are breathing a collective, if maybe temporary, sigh of relief. That's after the developer reportedly won approval from local creditors to extend a debt payment deadline. Company shares in Hong Kong soared on the news, although they're still down more than 60 percent year to date. Anna Stewart joins us now on this. I call it temporary just to emphasize, because even though this bond repayment now is uh, in some degree delayed, they still have to make interest payments on time. And they've got other dollar bond payments that have to be made. I think they're in the 30 day grace period on those. Anna, how are they doing as a result of this? Because investors seem to like it, at least for now. Yeah, I was fascinated looking at the share price reaction because it was pretty extreme, 15% higher today. But year to date, Country Garden is still down around 60%. It's a temporary measure. It is a sizable one, just given how big this bond was, uh, over half a billion dollars worth. They won't have to repay that uh, until 2026, albeit the interest uh, payments. But as you say, they've missed two payments now on US denominated bonds. The grace period ends next week. They have $200 billion worth of liabilities and around $4.3 billion in bonds maturing between now and the end of next year, according to Moody's. Perhaps actually now we can take half a billion dollars off of that, uh, according to today's news. What Country Garden really needs at this stage, though, is a recovery in the Chinese property market. And that's the one thing that I don't think is coming anytime soon. Yes. Talk to me about what um, the government and the authorities are trying to do to at least support this market now from the bottom. We've Mm. talked endlessly, I think, about the measures that they took to try and take down some of the leverage and some of the exuberance in the sector. What are they doing now to try and ease the fall and the decline that we've seen? It's been over two years now of defaults. It's almost extraordinary that Country Garden, one of the largest private property developers, hasn't yet defaulted, frankly. Uh, Looking at some of the sales figures that we've had in China, new home sales uh, for the biggest developers plunged 33% in July compared to a year ago. That just goes to show how much work needs to be done. So there have been some new policy policy measures unveiled by Beijing in recent days, easing mortgage requirements, uh, more attractive loans for first-time buyers. That may help a little, but you've got to remember the backdrop of economic data in China right now, unemployment rising, particularly from younger generations. They've got a long way to go to try and stimulate this economy. So all being said, I would say it doesn't look all that exciting. And for anyone that looks at Chinese property stories and wonders why we care so much, you know, the property market in China directly and indirectly accounts for almost a third of China's economy. And this is the second biggest economy in the world. So uh, stories like this do send shudders down our spines. Yes, they certainly do. And we will continue to talk about them as a result. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. 
Welcome back to First Move. US stock markets are closed for trade today due to the Labor Day holiday, but investors certainly hard at work in Europe where the major indexes are trading higher. As you can see, all this after a rally in Asia too. European stocks, in fact, hitting three-week highs, helped along by hopes that new Chinese stimulus will help revive the world's second largest economy. Actually, market-friendly US data, I would say, is also helping sentiment. And as you heard, earlier in the show. It's a day for harnessing hope amid the hardship as Africa confronts its future in a world of rising temperatures. African leaders, climate scientists and global climate ambassadors are gathered in Nairobi, Kenya to discuss the continent's path forward in a warmer world. The president of Kenya today urging the global community to invest further in Africa's green future, stressing the continent's vast energy potential. Africa currently receiving only 3% 3% of total global energy investment, despite the massive opportunities on the continent to further develop solar, wind, hydro and geothermal power. Now, the International Energy Agency believes green investment needs to double on the continent by 2030. The IA also, however, warning that the cost of financing these projects remains prohibitive and needs to be reduced significantly going forward. And Fatih Birol, the director of the International Energy Agency, is in Nairobi and he joins us now. So welcome to the show, as always. The first time that Africa has held a summit of this kind, I know you're promoting a new energy pact coming out of these talks, what will that contain? And what is the significance of this meeting at this moment? Uh, many thanks. Uh, yes, uh, you are right. This is a historic meeting, the very first meeting taking place in Africa on Africa's uh, energy and climate future, uh, organized by uh, President uh, Ruto of uh, Kenya, several uh, heads of states from uh, Africa, but also across the world are here, business leaders, investors, civil society. Uh, And you are right, uh, uh, President Ruto and myself uh, wrote a joint uh, article looking at Africa's energy future and uh, challenges and opportunities. To put the things in a context uh, for the climate change, Africa is responsible only 3% of the global emissions which is almost nothing, yet Africa is the continent which will be the most affected uh, from the impact of the changing climate in terms of droughts, uh, cyclones, and uh, others. So this is a major, major problem for uh, Africa. And in my view, also for the rest of the world, the social issues taking place in Africa as a result of the climate change, the imbalances uh, resulting in many... uh, uh, issues, including immigration, is a key, key, key challenge for mm. the rest of the world. And at the same time, Africa is host to huge amount of solar potential, wind potential, uh, a geothermal hydropower potential, but not making the most out of it because of lack of investments, as you said. Africa is getting 3% of global energy investment, while Africa has about 20% of the global population. So the issue is how to bring the capital investment for this lucrative uh, clean energy investment in uh, Africa and uh, mobilize that uh, financing. I think this is the key issue which is being discussed today in Nairobi 
between the uh, financial institutions, governments and others. Executive Director, I um, I don't even need to ask you the questions because you're asking them yourselves. Uh, yourself, I think that the how here is the important question. We, we just had my colleague Larry Madawa on talking about the loss fund that was agreed at the last COP. And he said, look, it does actually come down to money, but that money's not forthcoming. How do you um, circle that square, which is the fact that we can recognise that investment needs to rise. The problem is the cost of investing, the risk of investing in these regions, other concerns like governments and, and labour concerns sort of outweighs the willingness, I think, of people to, to give that money and to invest that money. How do, we, how do we make it people understand that this is a good investment and ensure actually that there is a good return for all? This is a very, very good uh, uh, point. So, first of all, let me share with you one of the, in my view, biggest injustices in the world when it comes to energy. In the entire uh, sub-Saharan Africa, we have the 60% of the global solar potential, the best solar potential. Mm. Yet, every second person doesn't have access to electricity. And the amount of electricity generated produced from solar in the entire sub-Saharan Africa is half of it which is uh, produced uh, in Netherlands. Think about the world yeah. map, how big is the sub-Saharan Africa, the size of Netherlands, how sunny is the Netherlands and the sub-Saharan Africa. This is really a big injustice and it is changing people's lives. So what needs to happen? Two things. One, the governments here try to minimize the risks of investment coming here because the investors will not come here because they have very good hearts to help the people, uh, most of them at least. The second, there is a need for the intangible financial institutions, such as the World Bank, regional development banks, playing a facilitator role and provide uh, some concessional funding, finding some de-risking uh, uh, mechanisms. And if we leave everything to the markets, the market rates, we will not be uh, able to see that uh, Africa will have access to electricity, which is a major issue, energy, economic and social terms. Yeah, it's such an important point, an abundance of sunshine, which um, ultimately you don't have to pay for, but you need infrastructure in order to be able to harness it. And there's still exactly. 600 million Africans that don't have access to, to any form of electricity. Um, there's so much work to do. Something else that you mentioned in that um, op-ed that you mentioned as well, and it caught my attention, um, that the continent's already the major producer. And we've talked about this in the past of the raw materials required in clean energy, like hydrogen fuel cells and batteries. It's 40% of the world reserves of cobalt, magnesium and platinum. Um, there is a balance to be found as we see the world pushing forward with technologies like electric vehicles and I know you've looked at transport infrastructure specifically in Africa they have the resources that the world needs we just have to ensure that there's an equitable balance between who receives them and who benefits from them how do we do that too exactly you are completely right in fact when we look at the numbers in the energy world which is there's a very clear trend clean energy is moving fast and faster than many people believe. It is the solar panels, uh, windmills, electric cars, uh, hydrogen, everything, and all of them need critical minerals, as, you, as we call it, in order to, to be built. And as it happens, Africa is the home of most of these critical minerals, and there is a 
a lot of interest of the mining companies. Uh, most of the former coal companies are now transforming, being mining companies for critical minerals, and they are coming yes. to Africa. In my view, Africa has uh, two, at least two major uh, jobs to do here. The governments having good equitable contracts uh, with those uh, uh, companies so that they make the real benefit from having them uh, hosting them here. And the second, maybe it may not be a better idea not to sell uh, those uh, cobalts or copper and uh, as such, but refine them, manufacture them here, and having a value added and multiply the value by a factor of X and sell it uh, uh, that way. So uh, it may not be a better idea not to mine, get it out of the uh, ground, out of the earth, but also refine that manufacture here and then sell it to the uh, global markets in which uh, Africans can uh, make uh, much more uh, money and make more of their uh, uh, precious resources. Yeah, I like that idea. I know you've been working with the African Development Bank too and you um, you have a report coming yes. out this week which I I certainly will be reading and uh, we can get you back on to uh, discuss. But for now, I'm going to let you go. I know you've got a busy three days ahead of you. Sir, thank you for your time, as always, today. Thank you. Birrell, the Executive Director of the International Energy Agency there. Now, Typhoon Haikwei is now headed towards China after injuring more than 40 people in Taiwan. No lives have been lost, but the damage is clear to see. Some 7,000 people have been evacuated from their homes as the typhoon approached. Power is now being restored to those who lost it, but it left a trail of flight cancellations and forced the closures of both offices and schools. Okay, so to come here on First Move, talking 3D printing to a whole new level. I'm talking to the founder of the team using technology to build a school in Ukraine. That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. You've probably heard on this show about 3D printed rockets or prosthetics or even toys. But what about a 3D printed building? Well, one foundation is doing just that. Team 4UA is a building a primary school in Lviv, Ukraine, using the latest 3D printing technology. The project is part of its Hive initiative, helping to rebuild essential infrastructure. Tens of thousands of children across the war-torn nation have been left without a place to learn. And according to Ukraine's Ministry of Education and Science, more than 2,000 schools have been damaged and 330 destroyed since the war began. Team 4UA plans to open the school's doors for students in January of 2024. Jean-Christophe Bonny is founder of Team 4UA and he joins us now. Jean-Christophe, fantastic to have you on the show. Just explain Team 4UA for us and how you found yourself rebuilding schools in Ukraine. 
Julia, good morning and good morning, America. Thank you for your invitation. Look, I got in like many humanitarians at the beginning of the invasion last March. And one of the main problems in Ukraine is, of course, reconstruction of the country. So we decided to introduce in Ukraine the 3D printing technology with concrete, reinforced concrete. And that's how the project began. I had a first meeting with the mayor of Lviv. He was explaining to me the big problem of having 75,000 refugees inside Lviv. And no home, and I asked him, "Why are you not printing?" And that's how it began. I mean, for most of us, the question "Why are you not printing?" Um, is uh, sort of mind-boggling, quite frankly. Why print? Why use a three D printer to print these um, versus just traditional forms of, of construction, prefabricated buildings, for example? Look, it's mostly a question of time. What you see around me is a school, 534 uh, square meter. It was printed in 40 hours. Wow. So what we need uh, in, in Ukraine is structure for very, very long time, not uh, for a couple of years. And secondly, it's not a question of cost. We need to be at the same cost than the market. It's a question of timing, how to print fast for children having school, how to print fast for people having home, how to print bridges, infrastructure, because we need to be able to rebuild a third of a train. I love your enthusiasm. OK, so we can print all of this in 40 hours. How long does it take to that, construct? Yes. Of course, of course. If you're doing something like this, you need someone like you on the job, I can see. Um, but then construction is <laughs> going to take you to Jan 2024. So it does take some time, even once you've 3D printed what you need to put everything together. Of course, when you are yeah. building a uh, uh, when you are building a building, any type of building, you have the foundation, you have the walls. Uh, if you have a few story building, by definition, you have few stories, and and you have also the roof. All these structures can be printed. Everything else, of course, you need a man to be able to get on site for doors, for heating system, electricity, and so on. And all of that will be done in this project in the next couple of months to open first of January. Can you compare the cost for me, Jean-Christophe, because it's not actually just about the time, it's as important as it is to rebuild fast. What about the relative cost? Julia, it's a question of country. If you are taking UK, United States, by definition, the time by hour combined with the fact that you don't have so many men to work on, on, on project, is putting the price of uh, manpower very high. Here in Ukraine, the cost for men, for people, is down. But we don't have people because most of the people are abroad or fighting. So it's at the end of the day, of course, a question of price for manpower and also a question of price for, for materials. Because when you print, most of the time, depending on the type of printing, you are, you are not spending too much material. So you can uh, economize between 30 and 50 percent on the concrete. So at the end of the day, it's a mix between time materials and, and manpower. Yeah. Who's paying for this, Jean-Christophe? Because I can so, imagine that actually one of the biggest challenges here is raising money and financing. Of, of course, of course. The time is flying, unfortunately. But the foundation we are, we are funding, we were funding last year, is having a first uh, a big donation from TED, the foundation TED. And we built the first part with TED Foundation. And now we are keeping writing money to be able to finish this school. We have also a, a project of printing a bridge in Kherson area. And the goal is, is to show the people we can do it, to be able to raise more and to duplicate this model everywhere it's needed in Ukraine.
So we raise money, people. We need money, we need donation, of course. What difference did partnering with the United Nations make? Because I think, again, there's going to be, as there always is in these situations where you're trying to raise money in a, in a war zone for, for rebuilding, um, concerns about regulation, about transparency. Um, has the United Nations helped you deal with some of that and encourage more investors? Alors, of course, our foundation is having two programs, reconstruction of the country and multi-sectorial answer. We are already working with WFP, with UNICEF, with United Nations Agency on the humanitarian side, delivering food and non-food items all over the front line. But they are very interested as well on a long-term range to be able to participate and to use technology like that to accelerate the processes of rebuilding for shelter, of helping people as well as participating with the private sector to rethink the country and to build the next phase. Jean-Christophe, I wonder if you've seen the story about the schools in the United Kingdom, because you mentioned the UK earlier in the conversation and concerns over the deterioration of concrete. Could they be building, rebuilding schools in this similar manner? And, and why don't we see more 3D printing of buildings? Is it just early? It's, it's a tricky question. Uh, let me answer that on a different way. In Europe, uh, if you see UK, if you see Ireland, uh, the price of metric uh, of square meter is very high. The price of manpower is high. The price mm. of materials is getting and rising. But at the same time, all European countries, as well as in states and others, are following a code of construction. In Europe, we need to be able to make the 3D printing accepted inside the code of construction as safe as a normal building, as safe as normal concrete. And that's a long process of advocating. In Ukraine, we were able to pass around that because the Ukrainian government now is very, very fast in decision. And we are working with academic uh, universities and the government to also make this type of construction on a few-story building accepted. It's all a question of advocating. But I can bet you, you will have in, in all the country, already you have in states a lot, 3D printing for school infrastructure and everything, it's just the beginning of construction, of a new way of construction. Jean-Christophe, I would never dare to bet against you and your enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> have, you, um, have you been surprised by the Ukrainian people that you've met, by their resilience, by sort of what they've been through Luca, and their efforts to rebuild? Yeah. Julia, I was, I was part of these crazy people getting inside the country in March last year when everyone evacuated the country. I'm fully in love with Ukraine. I'm in love with the, the resilience of these people. I'm in love with the way they are able to adapt. To just, you know, there is a problem. You can't get inside the door, so you go by the window and you adapt permanently. Their people, this country is in need of help. And I'm, I'm so proud to be accepted in this country with what we are doing and to give this country whatever we can with this foundation team for UA. Yeah, I spent a lot of time there during the invasion of Crimea in 2014, and I, um, I felt exactly the same. Thank you to you and your team for the work that you're doing, Jean-Christophe. We will talk again, no Julia, doubt. thanks a lot. Thanks Thank a lot. You. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Okay, still to come. Thousands remain trapped at the Burning Man Festival after heavy rains struck this weekend. We have the latest from the Black Rock Desert.
Welcome back to First Move. Heavy rain and deep mud have trapped thousands of people at the Burning Man Festival in the U.S. state of Nevada. Two to three months worth of rainfall doused the event over the weekend, turning the Black Rock Desert into a muddy bog, leaving thousands of visitors, well, stuck in the mud. It's even forcing the event to push back its big finale, the burning of a wooden man. And Camilla Bernal is there for us. Camilla, I have some friends, we'll call them ex-friends now, that for the last couple of years have been saying to me, you have to go, this thing is so amazing. Uh, Walk us through what I missed slash avoided. Well, look, before I tell you the bad stuff, I will say that everyone that I've talked to has still told me that it is amazing, that it is fun, that they've made the best out of a very difficult situation. That's what all of them keep telling me. But it is still very messy. It's still very muddy. Um, It's been difficult over the last couple of days because I also talked to a lot of people who told me, look, I walked. Uh, This behind me here is the playa, right? And so that's where it gets muddy and cakey. And people were having to walk this whole area here behind me. Now what you're seeing is a lot of the cars are actually able to make their way out. So this is the main entrance and exit out of the festival. And so you're seeing these RVs finally making their way out. It is not officially clear. They're not lifting the shelter in place. At least we have not heard from the organizers. We're waiting for word on that. Uh, And so we'll wait to see how many people decide to leave today. But over the last couple of days, they've been told to shelter in place to be very careful conserving water, fuel, food, because when people come here, they bring just the right amount of food and water for the days that they're going to be staying. So when they're told shelter in place, stay for one, two extra days, there were some that told me it's concerning because maybe we don't have enough for two more days or three more days. Um, But again, very positive. Everybody just very uh, happy and telling me that they've had a great time. The burn is supposed to happen tonight. We'll see if that actually ends up happening happening. Um, They're now telling people to keep on going because they want the flow of cars uh, to just remain open for people that want to come out. So we're waiting to hear from organizers to see what's going to happen throughout the day. But look, I saw people who had to put plastic bags on their shoes, wrap them uh, with duct tape in order to come out. They told me it took them about three hours. I talked to people whose RVs were stuck. They were using shovels to try to get those RVs up and running again. So it just has been a difficult last couple of days. Just because even though people here expected harsh conditions, they just did not expect this amount of rain and dealing with that very cakey mud, Julia. Yes, next time you want a mud bath, go to a spa, is all I can say. (laughs) Camilla Bernal, thank you so much for braving that for us and good luck escaping yourself. Thank you. And finally, on first move, how do you fancy a liquor latte? Yeah, no? Well, it's taking China by storm. Lucking Coffee and beverage giant Kuei Cho Motai are coming together to make an alcoholic latte. They're using the fiery Chinese spirit by Zhe The collaboration has set social media ablaze and triggered a rush apparently in stores. Now, for those looking for a major buzz in the early hours, well, you may be a little disappointed. The company says the alcohol content of the latte is below 0.5%. But what if you drink three or four like me? What a way to start the day. Hmm. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my X and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. 
Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.